It is the OU Jewish Reaction Program, and Rabbi Shmuel Golden is with us. He's one of the most articulate spokesmen in the Orthodox community today. He has developed an innovative educational approach to Torah study, Jewish law, and Jewish identity, which is enthusiastically received by traditional and non-traditional Jews alike. He has served as spiritual leader of Congregation Avas Torah in Englewood, New Jersey, since 1984, an instructor of Bible philosophy and Talmud at the Isaac Breuer College in the Machina Program of Yeshiva University, founding director and lecturer at the E. Fletchner Torah Institute, and currently serves as the first vice president of the Rabbinical Council of America. And the work is entitled Unlocking the Torah Text. Rabbi Shmuel Golden, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you again. I appreciate that, Rabbi Golden. Um, all right, how would you describe it, especially now as we are still in the first partio, the first section of the Torah? How would you describe your approach in uh, unlocking the Torah text uh, vis-a-vis uh, trying to analyze what's happening in our Torah? The uh, I, I think the impetus for me is that, that I love to teach Chumash, and one of the primary issues for me has always been that we tend to lock our understanding of the Torah in at a third or fourth grade level, the way we learned it when we were, when we were children. And I found over the years of teaching that this tremendous challenge in revisiting the text as adults and looking at the fundamental issues and questions that emerge that are really critical to our lives and critical to our understanding of our relationship with the text and with, with the Kaddish Baruch and our people. Um, so what I try to do, or what I do, is I take each parsha, and in my mind I sort of modeled it after Nechama Leibowitz's approach in, in terms of taking each parsha, breaking it up into a series of studies. In each parsha, I, after going through the context and explaining what the parsha says, or that particular point of the parsha says, I raise a series of critical questions, um, which I think are, 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 are interesting and perhaps we haven't thought of. And then I go through both the traditional answers. I go through a sea of uh, rabbinic responses from from the Talmud, from medieval times through modern times, and then I offer sometimes my own approaches, and then I have what's called a points to ponder section, where I raise critical issues, current events, and critical concerns, and how they relate to the Parsha. You know, it's interesting because, uh, as you were saying, the, as you were telling us the first part of the um, introduction, I'm thinking, which so many people think, that we as youngsters are taught certain things, which when we become older... Uh, we realize are you know things that are not actually written in the Torah are things that you know and obviously you know midrashic examples are are the prime or midrashic uh, analyses right. I guess would be the prime uh, um, uh, you know the the prime example of that. Um, well, you're it, hitting you're hitting exactly really on one of one of my pet peeves about the way that Torah is taught, and I say this in my introduction and I talk about it that we don't distinguish between pshat and medrash, right, and Really, the shot of the text, what the text says, is fascinating. And we tend not to, we automatically go to Medrash. We fail to understand the shot. And we also fail to understand the purpose of Medrash, which very often is not meant to be understood necessarily literally, but is to be understood in terms of the messages and the lessons that Chazal are trying to teach. And we confuse the two. So I go out of my way, and, I, and it's, it's amazing that you brought it up, because it, it really is a, a critical issue as far as I'm concerned, that I go out of my way to say this is Pshat, this is Medrash, and that just really focus on Pshat. 
uh, primarily, because I believe that that's where the lessons emerge. For example, in, 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 we're, we're coming into the Osage story. So one of the questions I raise, which to me is one of the most profound questions about Yosef, is why when he becomes the viceroy to Potiphar and then eventually the assistant uh, to, to Paro, why doesn't he ever contact his father? Right. <laughs> why, doesn't, why doesn't he send a, send a telegram? <laughs> Pick up the, I, I quote, why didn't Yosef go home? Right. I mean, there were years there. And, and then I go through, the Ramban has some answers to that. I go through uh, some some contemporary answers, and then I offer my own theory. And it, it, it's a, it's an opportunity for us to look at a at a story and say, "Wow, you know, I never thought of that." That that's really a powerful question. Is his behavior inexcusable in that way, or that's too strong of a word? I think that um, I think there are, there are a lot of answers. I mean, the Ramban, for example, says that he believes his own prophetic vision, and mm. that based upon his dreams. He doesn't believe he's supposed to contact his father yet. Rav Yoel bin Nun in Israel says that he's afraid that his father, and this is, this is radical, that he's afraid that his father might have agreed to what the brothers did because his father's never contacted him. Mm. He says, how come nobody's ever come to look for me? Not knowing that his father thinks he's dead. Right. Not knowing that his father... And then I have my own theory, and I, I prove it from the text, that I believe he can't contact his father, that the moment he becomes second in command to Paro is the moment that he is in the greatest danger in Egypt, because everybody's out to get him, because Paro has leapfrogged him over the other viceroy. And therefore, he's in a very tenuous rather than a very powerful position. Yeah, it's interesting, because we always, we always think of how, you know, the ease with which he became powerful... Right. And that that would, you know, he could write his own ticket, so to speak. And you're saying just the opposite. Uh, exactly. He, he was in a precarious situation. There's textual evidence that in a number of places that, number one, Paro, when Paro appoints him, Paro turns to all the officers and says to them, did any of you come up with this? Did any of you, is there anyone here who, who had a better solution to my dreams? And when they, only when they agree or they're silent does he make the appointment. And then when, when Yo and this is this is a very sad moment when Yosef, when the brothers come down the second time, and Yosef has them sit down and eat. He's mind gaming them, as it were, and he has them sit and eat in his palace. The Torah says that the Egyptians sat alone, the Israelites sat alone, and Yosef sat alone. Right. And it says because the Egyptians were unwilling to eat with the Israelites. And one of the one of the ways to understand it is that Yosef couldn't eat with the brothers because he was, but the Egyptians wouldn't eat with him. They still considered him, and some of the commentaries say this later. They can still considered him an outsider. Right. So he was in a very tenuous position. If he would have turned to someone and said, "I'm going to send a messenger back to my father," as far as I'm concerned, that messenger might have gone to the border, turned around, and come back and told Paro. Mm-hmm. And he would have been accused of double loyalty, which some of the Mepharshim say he was, in fact, suspected of. Wow. So it's it's a whole new way of looking at that. And then I, I suggest that that really changes the way we we understand the Yosef story, because Yosef, we always think of as this cosmopolitan Jew who succeeds 
in living in Gullus, and yet when his brothers come down, he goes out of his way to create a ghetto. Yeah. He says to them, don't t- tell the Paro you want to stay in Goshen, so he'll keep you separate. So you wonder what he's saying and whether he's recognizing his own limitations and recognizing that, that to keep the, Jew- the Israelites together, they've got to be separate from the Egyptians, as successful as he might have been. It's amazing how sometimes new approaches make so much sense, huh? I just think it's shot, but that's, uh, you know, again, whether this is shot, but I think the learning of shot, my favorite classical parish is the Rashbam, right. Rashi's grandson, because Rashbam always cleaves to shot. And I think if we learn the text, it's important to learn Medrash, but to distinguish it from the text. In other words, it's important to say first, what is the text telling me? What, 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 is, what is the actual substance? that I'm reading, and, and what are the questions that I can raise? And it's important to ask those questions, because what we find often is that Chazal asks them, and we never realize it. And if not, then even we can come up with answers that, that might make sense. You know, it's interesting, I don't have the text in front of me, but I think even the way then Paro deals with Yosef's father, when Yosef's mm-hmm. father eventually passes away, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if Yosef would have behaved or would have designated the type of uh, ceremonies and other things that were done, if not for the right. if not for the impetus of Paro. Absolutely. Oh, that that's a whole. I have a whole section on that where 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 part of the proof of Yosef's tenuous position is that when when he he, he number one when he when Yaakov asks to be buried in Eretz Israel, he makes Yosef swear. And the Parsham asks, well, why does Yosef have to swear? If you take a look, when Yosef asks Paro, and by the way, and this is important, Yosef himself doesn't go to Paro to ask him to bury Yaakov in Eretz Israel. It says he goes to Paro's household, and he asks the members of the household to please approach Paro with the request. And the first thing you, you think about is, wait a minute, he's checking in command. Why doesn't he just knock on the door and go in because he's afraid? And he, he recognizes that he doesn't, if he has, this is a very dangerous request. Because Cairo's going to say, what, Egypt's not good enough for you? So he has to, he has to politic. He has to go to the Cairo's household and he has to say, please, if I found favor in your eyes, you ask Cairo for me. And when he asks Paro, or asks them to ask Paro, the way he frames it is, my father made me swear. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing he says. And the commi- way I understand that is that's something Paro can understand. Right. He leaves out all the other things. Paro, because let's remember, Egypt, the, the pyramids, their whole worship or their whole connection to, the, to their ancestors. If somebody who passed away made me swear to do something, then I'd better do it. No choice. So, so he therefore requests it that way, and he says, "I'll go with him and I'll come back," because it's a very. So you see, even in that event, Yosef's fragile position. That it, on the one hand, he's very, very powerful and he's changed everything in Egypt. On the other hand, he's 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 very vulnerable. Rabbi Shmuel Golden is with us, Unlocking the Torah Text. It's available. It's an OU Press release and can be purchased at OUPress.org. And that's OUPress, 
dot org. Talking about the all safer braces right now. All five. One you can get it at Amazon as well, and in the uh, and in the local uh, Jewish bookstores. Right. Uh, it's available in Amazon and the bookstores as well. And all five volumes are already available, right? Yes, yes, the set is out. One, af- one after the other. Must have been amazing as each one was released. <laughs> it was very exciting. It I was could, very, very, very special. I could only imagine. Um, the uh, it, 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 I never thought again of the Cosmopolitan Joseph uh, in the context that you're uh, uh, that you're um, uh, presenting to us, which is pretty amazing. What about the um, in general the whole story of Joseph and the sale the uh you know the brothers those who wanted to kill him etc i mean now we're in the literally in the midst of the parsha where we read about the jealousy and the the uh you know we wonder how it is that great men like this in our history could possibly act in this way is there a way to explain it well there there are a couple of things that obviously have to be said there number one there there is the medrashic approach of chazal that tries to excuse the behavior of the brothers and it is an approach shot is you know, one of the things I, I, I think when we need to look at the patriarchal family is we have to understand that, that when a Kodesh Baruch Hu, uh, says Lech Lecha to Avraham and has him go and there's, there's a very strong experiment that's taking place at this point beyond launching the, the concept of monotheism and beyond going to Eretz Israel. It's also creating a situation where for the first time the family is going to be the educative unit for the for the children. Right. Until now, I would assume in that in that time, society, the tribe, raises the children. Along comes a Kodesh Baruch Hu to Avram and says, "You're going to break away from that. You're going to stand Me'aver. You're going to be an Ivory, and you're going to stand, and you are going to educate the children in the face of a surrounding society that's vastly different, which of course becomes the challenge of the Jewish people across the ages." In this, in that setting, it takes three generations for the family to get it right. Because there are such pressures around and such, so many things happen. And that's one way of understanding what's happening. The other, the other critical thing that emerges from the story of Yosef, and this has our point as well, is if you look very carefully at the text as Yosef is sold, it is very unclear as to who actually sells it. Right. It's very unclear because you have you have the brothers throw him into the pit. You have them see a, a caravan of Yishma'elim coming down. And then it says that a group of Midianim pass by, and, they, and the Torah says, and they pull Yosef from the pit. And you don't know whether the Pshad is like Rashi, who says they goes back on the brothers, or whether it's actually the Midianim who, who do the actual sale, yeah. like the Rashbam and others say. And then there are those who say that the Midianim and the Yishmaelim were one caravan. But one reason I believe the Torah leaves that vague is to teach us that on some level it doesn't matter. That even if the brothers did not do the actual sale, if they set up the situation where it could happen and then they stood and allowed it to happen they are as guilty as if they were the ones who did the sale themselves oh so that's that's looking at them in a in a pretty negative light that's correct right and it, does, and it doesn't and from a shot from a shot level correct right it doesn't matter what the us, circumstances were right it's teaching us right. teaching us 
that even if you are if you even if you don't do the act yourself, but if you stand by and witness it being done or allow it to be done, or as in their case set up the circumstances where it could be done, then then you become as guilty. And that's why you have that you have that tradition within Chazal as well of that you know paying for the paying for the crime of the brothers yeah. was because it happened that way. And Torah can be purposely vague. There's nothing there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with saying that. I think the Torah is purposely vague because it means to teach us tremendous lessons. One of the one of the most obvious places is go back a couple of parshio, go back to um Back for a moment to Cain and Hevel, for right. example. And in the case of Cain and Hevel, the Torah says, at the moment of, of Cain killing Hevel, it says, Vayomer Cain el Hevel Ochiv, Vayibiyosam Basadeh, Vayakam Cain al Hevel Ochiv, Vayargeyu. says, Cain said to Hevel, then it says they were both in the field, and then it says Cain killed Hevel. It doesn't right. say, it deliberately leaves out what Kayan said to Hevel. Mm-hmm. If it would have said, by Yadaber Kayan El Hevel Ochiv, that would have been a halbat Torah, because it would have been, okay, he spoke to him. We don't know what the substance is, but by Yomer, it's never in the Torah unless there is a substance to the conversation, because it means he said, what did he say? So Chazal in the Medrash will offer a, a number of answers, but Pashat, I've always felt that what the Torah is saying to us through that omission is it doesn't matter what he said. Amazing. Amazing. That no matter what the rationale, no matter what the provocation, right. there is absolutely no excuse for what that happened. No justification. No justification. And look how powerful that lesson is, unfortunately, in our world today. Oh, yes. The same same lesson. We've never moved off that killing field. And God, unfortunately, and, Hashem is, and, and the Torah deliberately sets it up so by omission, it teaches us that tremendous lesson. The amazing set, Bracious Through Dvarim, is entitled Unlocking the Torah Text, an in-depth journey into the weekly Parsha, as we mentioned, an OU Press release, available at OUPress.org, Amazon, your local Judaica store. It's by Shmuel Golden. It is really an amazing uh, a look at um, at both Pshat and Drash and many other aspects of our Torah. Rabbi Golden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Malcolm. I really appreciate the opportunity. And Always con- a pleasure. Continued Hatzlacha, Rabbi Shmuel Golden, unlocking the Torah text, an in-depth journey into the weekly Parsha. You are listening to the Nachum Siegel Network.
It's Avi Miller out of Israel. He's part of our uh, major event next week in Paris as the Jewish Unity Initiative, which uh, we are proud to uh, lead, is uh, heading to Paris next week. We'll be doing uh, two radio broadcasts during JM and the AM time on Wednesday and Thursday morning. Uh, two radio broadcasts uh, live from Paris. And, of course, Wednesday night is the uh, major event, the uh, the Concert of Jewish Unity being presented in La Victoire in the uh, Great Paris Synagogue. And um, Avi Miller is one of the uh, artists who's going to be with us at that major event. And I thank everybody who has expressed such enthusiasm for what we're doing over Hanukkah in terms of being in Paris and presenting our programming from there and um, transmitting the message of Achdus, of brotherhood and sisterhood, to our brothers and sisters uh, in France. Uh, Rabbi Ari Khan is with us. Uh, Rabbi Ari Khan is um, no stranger to these airwaves, that's for sure. He is the uh, author of Echoes of Eden. Echoes of Eden. Um, obviously, we'll discuss, we'll, uh, discuss um, uh, Safer Bracious, but four of the five volumes have already been released, and the fifth is on the way. You can explore Safer Bracious and discover a breathtaking dimension of originality and profundity, gain new insights, both rigorous and creative, into the stories you thought you knew so well. The distinguished scholar and educator of Ayari Khan presents a series of strikingly original interpretive essays in the weekly Parsha noteworthy for their novel approach, drawing upon the vast reservoir of rabbinic literature from Talmud to Midrash, from Zohar to the Hasidic masters. Ayari Khan continues, combines rather the mystical, explore, the mystical explorations of Kabbalah and Hasidism with a highly intellectual and broad-minded approach to Torah study as he applies psychology, literature, and Jewish history to the understanding of esoteric Midrashim in the Zohar. Ayari Khan takes you on an exhilarating journey as his book sheds new light on some of the most difficult narratives of the biblical text. Rabbi Ari Khan, welcome back to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you very much. Uh, Echoes of Eden. A lot of the things I just said in the introduction in terms of this combination of Hasidic masters and Zohar and Torah, you know, basic, broad-minded, rather, approach to Torah study, psychology. I, I, was, I was impressed when you were saying, I thought it was my mother writing all that. <laughs> but it, it, sometimes people think all those can't be combined, that all those can't be studied together or draw conclusions with all of them together. How do you manage to juggle all of them and create Echoes of Eden? Uh, you know what, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure. But uh, I, I, I try to learn a lot. I look in different sources. And they're all part of our tradition. So uh, I think, therefore, they become part of the finished product as well. All those angles help us understand the stories of Bracious, for instance, which you have to admit are somewhat complicated, or sometimes, instead of helping, can make things even a little bit more confusing. Well, you know, you know, when I read the text, the first thing I do is I read it by itself. I just read it and see what does it say, one chips out, what jumps out at me. And sometimes I go looking for ideas because something that I see there and I say, okay, someone's got to say this. And sometimes you find ideas in different types of places. What's a good example of that where you say to yourself, this, has got to, this, this must have been written by somebody, and then you go ahead and discover it? 
Okay, I'll give you an example of something that I found last year, and I can't find anyone yet, so maybe one of your uh, <laughs> pollers will tell you where they saw it, other than where I wrote it last year. And that is when the brothers were about, this week's Parsha, the brothers were about to sell Yosef, and, uh, or they're about to sell him. You know, Reuben, the first brothers, probably Shimon and Levi, said, kill him. Right. Right, Ruvain put him in the pit, and then Yehuda has this idea, let's sell him, and at that moment, the Yishmaelim go by. I mean, who is Yishmael? Yishmael is the son of Avraham that, were, that got sent away. And then we're told the Midianim show up. Right. Who's Midian's father? It's Avraham. He's one of the children that Avraham had with Keturah. So if I'm Yehuda at that moment, and I see Yishmael come, and I see Midian come by, I say, wow, this is a sign from God. We're doing the right thing. Interesting. And we haven't found anybody who has written it before I, you. I haven't found anybody who said that yet. Yeah. Um, in general, the whole story of the the sale of Yosef and uh, and and you know and the conclusion of his being with his family is one of the most I don't know would you say difficult tales to understand in the Torah. Painful. I don't know. If it's difficult to understand. It's painful. The, the reason it's not difficult is it's human nature. I mean, uh, you know how much all of us get along with our siblings, and, you know, when we're kids, it's harder. But what happens when there's one different mother or two different mothers, three or four different mothers? It complicates it. And they're all looking... I, I, think, that, I think that's the background. Again, I'll, I'll give you another insight just from this week. That uh, and There's a little bit of disagreement in terms of the Midrashim on this, but apparently what Yosef did is he protected the sons of the concubines, of the Pilagshim. And he wanted everyone to be treated equally, so he defended them. But, of course, by defending them, then the children of Leah lose their status. Because Yosef was the highest hierarchy, and then the children of Leah, and then the children of Pelagashim. So Yosef, in a sense of fairness, wants to treat everyone equally. But when he does that, Leah's children the ones who get hit by it. Yeah, understood. Um, uh, Rabbi Ari Khan is with us. We're talking about uh, Echoes of Eden. It's an OU Press release. It's available at OU Press. Dot org. Uh, if that, if, if what you're saying is, uh, is to be taken, you know, in, in terms of the way, you know, siblings get along and all the complications regarding the, you know, different mothers, etc. Really, every early Jewish family is in some way dysfunctional or in some, and I mean, yeah. on, I mean, on paper. I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about personalities at the moment, although you could expand on that if you wish. But it, it, it's interesting how there's, you know, there, there's, there's less of a sense of normalcy as we know you know, family life and what, you know, normal is considered uh, compared to the abnormal early on. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there is a lot of dysfunctionality, and maybe that should make a lot of us feel a lot better. <laughs> we, we, have the, we have that going all the way but, all the way back. But again, you know, we have to be careful because as the Ramban, even when he talks about certain outrages which are done, he still calls them tzaddikim. Yeah. The children, Shimon and Levi, Tzadik, and they still went and did what they did, which means there's a value judgment there. But on the other hand, these are people that are a little bit out of our league, and I say that as an understatement, obviously. Yeah, and there's no way to even make comparisons between the era that we're used to now and uh, and, and that time, no matter what. Right, and, and it's interesting, because that's actually a big fight which takes place in Israel and in, among religious Zionism about how much to look at the biblical characters as normal people, quote-unquote, versus how much to look at them as being real spiritual her- heroes totally outside of our grasp. Right. The way they ter- call the phrase is to look at them, begova enayim, eye to eye, or do we look up to them as somebody out of, you know, completely outside. Right. And uh, uh, it's interesting because I don't, I, I try to avoid those kinds of uh, 
issues, but I, uh, I, I certainly do look, you know, one of the terms you use in psychology, I would call this as layman psychology, to try to understand motivations, to try to understand how the biblical characters do behave. You have a section, since we're dealing with this parsha, I would like to expand it, uh, called Clothes Make the Man. What do we learn from yeah. the coat of many colors? do notice or don't notice in the Parsha, and that is there is an enormous amount of clothing, which means it's not just Yosef's clothing, it's Yosef's clothing, and afterwards it's Tamar's clothing, and afterwards Yosef's clothing gets ripped off by Asha Potiphar, which means there's just clothing is in this week's Parsha something which is a little beneath the surface, which just, excuse the pun, weaves the whole Parsha together as, as one. Hmm. So that, that is really what I was trying to point out in that in that piece, because people don't necessarily connect it. I mean, Yosef has his clothing ripped off more than once. You really can't miss that, or maybe you can. So I guess that's why I have to write the book. Do <laughs> miss that. And the Ketonet Pasim is understood as being made of shotness? <laughs> well, the Ketonet Pasim, the question is what you look as it's... Uh, as it's made, what it, what it represents. There are essentially two different directions that one can go, again, easy, that one can go on this. One is that both Rashi and the Ramban hint or point to, and that focuses on the exact same term, which is going to be used later on. And now here's a real irony. It's going to be used later on within the royal family, where not where David's children don't hate one another, but rather where they love one another, but in, a, in, in, in the wrong way. And that's obviously... Uh, Amnon and Tamar, where he goes and he rapes her, he has this uh, fixation for her, but she's wearing a ketonet pasim and she takes it off. So there we have within the family life, we see it, but what, but what the commentaries notice from that, it is the clothing of royalty. And therefore, when you look at the end of last week's parsha, it says, and these are the kings that ruled in Asaph before there were kings in Israel, being kingship then becomes the topic over here. Who's going to be king? Who's going to rule? Will it be Yosef? Will it be Yehuda? Will it be Reuben? Where is kingship going to come from? And therefore, and here's something also interesting. Did it? I'm going to, I'm going to test you now. Does the Torah say that Yaakov loved Yosef more than the other, than the other brothers? Doesn't it say it in this week's it's part? No-brainer. Does it say that Yaakov loved Yosef more than the other brothers? That's my question. It says it in this week's part, right? No. So the answer is no, it doesn't say it. What it says is that Yisrael loved him. Yeah. So that to me is real interesting because the passage before it is, it's, it's, uh, talks about Yaakov and Elotodos, Yaakov, Yosef, and so on. Next passage it says, the Yisrael have. Yisrael seems to be the more national, the more public aspect. He loves Yosef because of his qualities. He loves him because of his greatness. I mean, by the way, that's the real Sinaschinim. Every single person who meets Yosef is blown away by him and puts him in control. It, it, it's first Yaakov. It's later on when he gets to Potiphar's house, later on when he gets to the prison, later on he gets to Paro's house. Every person who meets Yosef is blown away by his capabilities. And, of course, the only ones who don't see it, who can't see it, are his own brothers. That's the sinas chinam. Sinas chinam is when you don't see somebody else's greatness because of your own bias. Wow. Phenomenal. Echoes of Eden, Safer Bracious, Maore Ha'esh, Fire and Flame, Insights into the Weekly Torah Portion, a Geffen Publishing House, OU Press release. You can go to OUPress.org or by Ari Khan is with us uh, via telephone. Um, what do you make of the fact that Yosef does not contact his father during all the time he's in Egypt? Well, that was a question that was raised by a number of Rishonim. It was, named, it was raised by the Ramban and it was raised by... Uh, by the Rosh and some others, and uh, or Rabbeinu Shimshon, the Rosh Bishans. 
And uh, the one who really made this question famous a number of years ago, around 1975, Rabbi Yol wrote an article about this. And he claimed that Yosef didn't write to his father because his father, he thought his father was in on it, which I, I, I thought was absolutely uh, preposterous but brilliant. And uh, why doesn't he contact his father? Did he have really the opportunity to contact him? And if you're going to say that he did, I think Yosef was motivated by something else, which is the answer which the Ramban gives, which is difficult, and that is he knows that the brothers have to somehow fix this. This is something which is too deep. This is something which is too painful. Uh, I'll put it this way. The book of Beratius has to come to an end, but before it comes to an end, there has to be some kind of resolution, and there isn't. That's the sad part. You know what scene is really, really painful? The brothers come, and they're standing in front of him, and Yosef says, you know, who are you, whatever. And they say, oh, we're, we're, you know, ten sons. We came looking for food. And Yosef says, you're spies. And he goes, no, no, we're looking for food. He goes, you're spies. Looking for food, you're spies. And he goes, what is it that he wants? What does Yosef want from them? And the answer, in my mind, is really, answers your question. He wants them to say they're spies. He wants them to say we're looking for something. He wants them to say, we have a brother, and last time we saw him, he was going down to Egypt. He wants them to somehow to fix this thing. If he contacts his father, nothing gets fixed. And you know what the brothers that say? No, we're all ten, ten sons of one man. One is with his father. Ve'echad einenu. Do you remember what Yosef answers? He says, "Who asher amarti lachem That's the one I'm referring to when I said you're spies. He's begging them to say, "I'm looking for Yosef," and they can't say it. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And then when the revelation finally happens. That is why it, I, I don't know that we're taught. Uh, sometimes it's confusing what's uh, actual, you know, written in Torah and, and what we've been taught outside the text of the Torah. But we are taught that uh, Yosef was very compassionate, wanted to make sure that they would not think that he wanted revenge or wanted to, because all he was looking for was a resolution to all this. Well, well, I, I think that when you get to the chapter before, Yosef all along the way over here takes them on. I'll put it this way: Yosef is a tour guide of a guilt trip. He takes them through, and he's pushing all kinds of emotional buttons along the way. See, they failed in the sense of trying to unify around Yosef. They can't admit they're looking for him. And there's some in Gresham say that he, they were. But they do unify around Binyamin. That's the second, that is the second opportunity. So he puts Binyamin in a similar sign of situation, and he makes it real easy for them to walk away. And then Yehuda stands up, and he gives this impassioned speech which, by the way, is full of misinformation. And it's really interesting to analyze that speech. But he gives an impassioned speech, finally accusing Yosef of doing terrible things to their elderly father. You know, his father, he loves this kid. And if we take his son away from him, he's going to die. And then Yosef says back to them, this is the Sforno I'm telling you now. He says back, he goes, And Yosef, you just said, if you take the son away from the father who he loves, he's going to die. I'm Yosef. Is my father still alive? You're accusing me of taking away. What about you? What did you do to your father? And, and, and really, you know, you know, I heard Rav Soloveitchik speak about this. This was the last public shear he ever gave on Parshat Shavuah. If you remember, he used to give them on Wednesday night, right. which I have a very funny story about if you want to hear it. Sure. But uh, he, he, the Rav said, so you hated me. How do you do this to your father? You know, and parenthetically, even Esav, who hated Yaakov, said, I'm going to wait for my father to be dead. How in the world do you do this when your father is still alive? Unbelievable. What's the funny story, by the way? <laughs> well, the funny story is that in, in the late 70s, the Rav was in his apartment. You know, his wife had passed away years ago. He had a number of Shamashim, guys who used to take care of him. And one night he looks at all these guys, and, you know, these were, we would, you know, the older guys. We, we used to call the lifers who used to hang around YU. And he looks around and says, what are you guys doing here? 
And he's and they said, well, you know, we're taking care of you. He says, no, why are you home with your wife? He goes, Rebbe, we're not married. He goes, well, why not? So they said, it's a little hard to find girls, you know. We're not the kind who are going to, you know, in those days, right. go on shirk dates. Right. And we're not the type who are going to hang in front of Stern, you know, till somebody walks out. So the Rev thinks for a second and says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give a chumash here on Wednesday night. I'll get the girls into the room, but you've got to walk over to them afterwards and then talk, and talk to them. <laughs> the reason he gave the Wednesday night cheer was in order to help the, the quote-unquote shidduch crisis in YU. That's funny. Unbelievable. Rabbi Khan, always a delight to speak with you. Echoes of Eden, it's uh, it's a four uh, sets so far, four volumes, I should say, Bracious through by Midbar and Devarim, as you said, is about to be released right in the next few weeks. Yes, yes, yes. It should be going to print literally this week or next week, and... Uh... We're excited. The end of Devarim, actually, the reason was delayed. We have a long index for all five books, which will be put at the end of Devarim as well. Wow, fantastic. Rabbi Ari Khan, you can go to OUPress.org. You can check out the uh, Echoes of Eden on Safer Bracious and, of course, on all the different uh, uh, of the Chamisha Chumshe Torah. And you can go to OUPress.org for information and to purchase it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. Rabbi Ari Khan, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, that's Ohad. Can't say enough about him and his involvement in our incredible um, Jewish Unity Initiative. He'll be there next week in Paris, as will we, and I thank everybody for their enthusiasm. As we present the JM and the AM and uh, an amazing concert for Jewish Unity in Paris with our Jewish Unity Initiative on the holiday of Hanukkah. You are listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program, and this is the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> 